Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club event. I'm Garrett Hongo, poet, writer, and your moderator for today. The club's Asia-Pacific Affairs member-led forum is proud to be hosting today's event. For more information about upcoming member-led forum activities and events, please visit www.commonwealthclub.org backslash member hyphen led hyphen forums. The club would also like to thank the Bernard Ocher Foundation for supporting today's Good Lit event. It's my pleasure to introduce Bruce Henderson. Bruce is an award-winning journalist and author of more than 20 nonfiction books. His latest book, Bridge to the Sun, The Secret Role of the Japanese Americans Who Thought in the Pacific in World War II, is one of the last great untold stories of that war. Bruce chronicles the saga of Japanese Americans uh, who are U.S. soldiers who fought in the Pacific against Japan, their ancestral homeland, even as their families back home in America were being rounded up and forced to live in government internment camps. We encourage you to submit any questions for Bruce in the YouTube text chat. Bruce, uh, let me welcome you and start off by asking a question. What was it that brought you to the story of the Japanese Americans who served in the Pacific during World War II? Well, thank you, Garrett. It's good to be here with you. Um, I, I must admit, I, I came across the story rather uh, accidentally. I was at the archives uh, and I was researching an earlier, another book of mine. And uh, I, I discovered that there were these Japanese American soldiers who were trained as interpreters, translators, and interrogators and sent into the Pacific. And now I had done World War II books, several of them, including a couple uh, set in the Pacific. And I just had no idea that the Nisei soldiers fought in the Pacific. I knew about the 442nd that fought in Europe and Italy and, and France, and a highly decorated uh, small unit that was said to be the most highly decorated unit of the war uh, in Europe. And a lot of books, a lot of films about them, but nothing that I knew about in terms of the military intelligence service training the Nisei for the Pacific. And I thought, what an amazing story that must be. And that actually started me on a four-year journey to, to write this book. Tell us about the climate in the U.S. towards Japanese Americans after Pearl Harbor. And then the well, removal, the internment that uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt ordered in Executive Order 9066. Well, as you know, even before Pearl Harbor, there was uh, uh, a lot of anti-Asian uh, policies and uh, uh, prejudice. Uh, uh, the immigrants, uh, the Japanese immigrants, uh, the parents of the Nisei, the men who would be the soldiers fighting in the Pacific, were, were still Japanese citizens. And in fact, they were not allowed to become naturalized American citizens. And in most cases, they were not allowed to own the, the land that they were farming. And there were just a lot of restrictions uh, uh, against them and a lot of prejudice and, against them. And then when Pearl Harbor happened and Japan struck uh, our fleet at Pearl at uh, in Hawaii, uh, and we were in a war with Japan, now suddenly uh, not only the the, the Japanese immigrants, the parents, were considered alien 
um, enemy aliens, but even their offspring, the Nisei, who were as American as anybody else, being born here and uh, natural-born American citizens, well, they were, if they lived on the West Coast, most of them were rounded up with their families and sent to these camps in these desolate areas of the country. And, um, you know, what's shocking is that of the 110 or 20,000 of these ethnic Japanese who were in these camps, 60% of them uh, were American citizens. And uh, they were there, you know, completely deprived of their, whatever rights any American has under, you know, the Constitution. They were there. They were behind Bob wire. So there was a strong suspicion of disloyalty and uh, fifth column activity, possibly. On the West Coast and with all the military installations. And there was that fear. And ironically, the 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 young Japanese Americans, and, and it was not uncommon in those days for their parents to send, particularly their sons, uh, to Japan for a couple of years to go to school there to meet the relatives, to learn about the ancestors, the, the culture, the history of, of the ancestral homeland, and then, of course, return. Um, but they were called the Kibay, Kibay. And uh, initially, when war broke out, the U.S. government said, boy, anybody who had been in Japan, anybody who had been going to school there, we can't trust them at all because they may be, you know, their loyalty may rest with the emperor. Well, what happened was, when we got into the war, uh, within a short period of time, the U.S. Army realized that we needed the language skills in the Pacific. Uh, and uh, who were who are we going to find to to train for these jobs? And not every, as you know, not every Japanese American knew uh, was fluent in in reading and writing Japanese. But many of the them folks were were eager to prove their loyalty to the United States. And as you said before, many of them uh, enlisted, volunteered, or were drafted into the famous 442nd Regimental Combat Team, within which Senators Spark Matsunaga and Daniel Inoue served as officers. Uh, those They fought in Europe, but your six characters in Bridge to the Sun were chosen and volunteered for this very different duty. It, it was a different duty, and um, there were some some people in the War Department who were worried. Uh, they said, "Oh, it's one thing to send a Japanese American infantryman to Europe to, you know, to to fight the the Germans, but to the Pacific, would they would they fight their own kind? Well, of course, they weren't their own kind. They were our guys were Americans, and they were the Japanese Army." Uh, but there was still that that suspicion initially. But they again needed the language skills, and they, what happened was they brought them in. And some of the some of the fellows uh, volunteered out of the 442nd before they went overseas to go to the MIS Military Intelligence Service uh, Language School at Camp Savage in Minnesota, and uh, it was a six month program that was actually just cram packed with all kinds of uh, learning the military terms, uh, uh, learning how to handle interrogations of POWs. It was a tough, tough program. And these guys, six months in, after six months, graduated and were assigned to 10-man, 10, 10 to 12-man uh, intelligence teams and were, were sent over into the Pacific. 
And they were attached to basically every size unit from uh, battalion, regiment, uh, army, corps. MacArthur had about 400 of them down in Australia. And they were not only interrogate, not only interrogating prisoners when they were captured, but also importantly, inter- uh, interpreting and uh, uh, translating uh, documents that were being recovered off the battlefields. So it was a unique skill set. But at the same time, these guys were soldiers and they had guns and uh, they had to fight. You know, they were in a war. Let's refocus about that moment where your characters were recruited or volunteered out of the internment camps. How did they feel about that? You know, could we show a picture? Um, I'd like to answer that with this really stunning image uh, taken in one of the internment camps. Uh, The Army recruiters actually came uh, into the camps, and this is one uh, uh, camp in particular, and they were asking for these guys to volunteer for military, the military intelligence service uh, language school, and we need you. Now, these are some of the same guys who had gone to school in Japan who four months ago were said not to be trustworthy, but now the Army's coming in and saying, Uncle Sam needs you. And they, you could see they stepped forward. I mean, uh, and they were given the oath right in the camp, and um, they were, you know, motivated uh, not only to get out of the camp, but to help get this war over with so their families could could get out of the camps. And what an interesting side note is that some of these young men who were uh, sworn in there in the camps were actually taken out uh, by the army at four in the morning out the back gate. So nobody else in the camp could could see the the uh, recruitment because there was there was some bitterness in the camp as as you know as we knew uh, there were some bitterness uh, bitter people there about why are we here so uh, they were concerned initially but these guys are certainly ready to go do their duty. Well, t- tell me a little bit more about the specifics of their training uh, before they were sent to the Pacific. What was that specialty MIS training? Well, I mean, it's the 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 list of uh, of courses would would knock as a, as a university instructor. I'm sure would would knock you back. It it really looks like a college, uh, you know, two or three, four years worth of college courses, uh, reading and translation and Japanese military terms. Not only the Japanese army but the American army, interrogation, interpretation. Uh, grammar, uh, Chinese or uh, Japanese and English, uh, Japanese shorthand, Japanese geography, all of that kind of stuff. It was really in what's called social, the calligraphy. Yes, yes, they were kanji too. Um, so yeah, it was a tough, a tough program, and they weren't all, you know, didn't all go into their uh, into that school fluent in Japanese. So they had different levels of fluency, and when they would when they would form a ten or twelve man. Uh, team after graduation, they always made sure they had four or five very, very fluent in Japanese uh, fellows. And then they had some others that maybe were better in English at writing reports and stuff like that. So they could, you know, kind of kind of pool their uh, their skill set and, and, and do their job out in the Pacific. You mentioned they were also trained in interrogation techniques. Yes, they were. Well, they had to know how to handle... POWs, uh, what you can say, what you can do with them, what you 
can't do with them, uh, how to uh, so, uh, elicit inf- information. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, there was the Geneva Convention. And one thing I was very impressed by is these guys were never, ever, uh, they told, I never tempted, attempted at all to treat prisoners badly. And in fact, they were taught that uh, if you if you beat somebody to try to get information out of them, they'll tell you anything for you to stop beating them. So that's not the way to get, you know, this so-called enhanced interrogation stuff that came up uh, just, uh, you know, a few years ago is pretty bogus because that's no way to get good information. And these guys knew that. How many exactly um, were in the MIS? How many say? Well, um, there were about 35,000 Japanese Americans who uh, served in uh, World War II. About 20,000 of them went to Europe. Uh, and uh, there were, uh, were 6,000 6, who graduated from the, uh, from the language school and about 4,000 served in the Pacific. You know, that's ironic. That's about the same number as were... Uh, not interned, but imprisoned by the federal system under the Department of Justice in the first roundup after Pearl Harbor, the, the fellows who were imprisoned in Santa Fe and Crystal City, Texas, mm-hmm. they're basically community leaders. So it's very ironic that it was about the same number as the MIS. Yes, that is. Can we see a few, Carrot? Uh, can we see a few more of these pictures that I'd like to, uh, I'd like to, I've got, you know, uh, stories here. Now this again, is is back in the school and uh, uh, in the classroom and at, at Camp Savage in, in Minnesota. And uh, it was um, um, a tough course that these guys were basically in seven days a week. Uh, the lights went out at 10 o'clock at night and a lot of them went into the uh, to the bathrooms where the only lights stayed on and were uh, studying in there for half the night. Um, uh, just to get through this course. I think there's another, we can just keep moving through these. Um, yeah, here we are. You can see um, they, these guys, when they went out in the field, uh, in addition to their guns and uh, uh, packs and everything else, had to bring these dictionaries and these uh, order of battle uh, uh, books with them. And uh, it was um, it was really something. But as you can see now, this is in Burma, and that's Frank Merle of Merle's Marauders. He had uh, 12 of, of the Nisei uh, assigned to him, and these two were his personal interpreters. And uh, you'll notice that, of course, they have guns. Uh, again, they are soldiers, and they were, they were there to fight as well as uh, do, the, do the language uh, um, stuff. And uh, they also were considered very valuable among the uh, – uh, GI units. There was some concern early on that there they would be subject to um, some persecution when they went into the, you know, when went out to the Pacific. That some of these GIs, you know, from Texas, places like that, have maybe never even seen Japanese Americans. Uh, how would they treat them? Well, very early on, they got the idea that these guys were going to be very valuable to them, and not only and get information, and not only help them win battles, but save American lives. Oh, now this is this is one of my favorite pictures. This is one of our my characters, Kazu Komodo, who was shot in the the knee at uh, in 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 the Solomon Islands in July '43. Has a couple of distinctions. One is that he was the first Nisei wounded in World War II because the 442nd hadn't even gone overseas yet, 
And secondly, as you can see, he's in an army hospital in Fiji, and this is none other than Eleanor Roosevelt doing a tour of the hospitals in the South Pacific. And uh, um, she comes to his bedside to meet him, and she really visited virtually thousands of of wounded soldiers on that on that tour. And uh, uh, you can see how how delighted he is to see her. But a few seconds after this picture is taken, uh, Komodo, who by all accounts is is a is a pretty shy, you know, guy, pretty 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 soft spoken and whatnot. He decides this is a an opportunity to tell the president's wife exactly how he feels. And he said, Mrs. Roosevelt, you know, I am out here getting shot, and my family is behind Bob Wire in a in an internment camp in a, in the desert in Arizona, and that's a raw deal. You know that's not fair, and she said, "Well, I just want you to know they're being well taken care of, and uh, um, but you know I will pass your feelings on to the, to the president." Of course, what she didn't tell Komodo was she had some serious reservations about the internment camp uh, and uh, uh, was wanting to see a lot of them get out of there as soon as they could get good jobs. But in any case, he took his moment <laughs> to let the president's wife know um, exactly how he felt. Now, this is Komodo uh, again about two months later. By now, he's already spent a month in a hospital in California and uh, recovering from his wound, and uh, he's discharged and allowed to go down to Arizona to visit his, his family. And en route, he takes the train, he takes a bus, he stops, gets off one town short of of the internment camp. He's heard that they um, they don't have a lot of fresh meat in the camp, so he's decided he's going to go shopping and bring some bring some uh, groceries into his family. So he walks into this little grocery and goes to the back where the butcher is, and uh, he's looking. He says, "Ah, yes, I'd like I'd like these cuts and this." And the butcher looks over at him and says, "We don't sell no meat to Japs." And Komodo says, um, "I'm not a Jap." Uh, and the butcher says, well, what are you? And Komodo says, I'm an American. And uh, the butcher says, well, so am I. And Komodo says, yes, I'm in uniform. You're not. And as if the butcher saw him for the first time in uniform with his with his medals, with his ribbons, uh, he, he uh, said, all right, what is it that you want? So Komodo gets into camp, visits his family. And this is a just a wonderful shot that really breaks my heart. It's his little brother uh, on his lap, and he sh- Komodo is showing him his his Purple Heart medal for for being wounded. There were many incidents like that. Yeah, um, and this is uh, on the left is is Warren Higa Higa, and he and his brother Takahiro. Uh, we're on the same language team. They're they're actually Okinawan, although they were born in Hawaii, and uh, um, and then their their parents took them to Okinawa. Uh, Warren came back to Hawaii within a short period of time, but his brother um, stayed in Okinawa. I'll get to his brother's story in a minute. But this is Warren uh, in, interrogating a Japanese prisoner uh, on o- on Okinawa. Now this is these are the brothers. This is uh, Warren on the left and uh, Takahiro on the right. Takahiro 
stayed, as I say, in Okinawa, uh, lived with his mother, she passed away, and then with other relatives, and didn't return to Hawaii until he was about 17 or 18. He, he finished high school in Hawaii. Uh, when the war broke out, uh, the military intelligence service uh, recruited Takahiro because not only did he speak Japanese, which of course is spoken in Okinawa, is there the official language, but also the Okinawan dialect, which a lot of the locals spoke, particularly the older folks. And of course, he, he knew English. So he, 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 was, he was brought into the language school. Takahiro was willing, absolutely willing to do his duty, but there was a one fear that he had was that he never wanted to have to fight on Okinawa. He didn't want to, he didn't want to have to look across the battle lines and see a, a relative, a cousin, a, a schoolmate. And that was a real big fear for him. He thought, well, the Pacific's a big, a big battleground. So, you know, I'll, they'll obviously probably send me somewhere else. Well, of course, where did he end up? He ended up uh, in the invasion of Okinawa. And more so when they were planning the invasion uh, in, in the Philippines, uh, his, his, uh, in, his infantry division found out that he'd uh, been raised in Okinawa. So they called him into the, the planning section and uh, he started, they started showing him photo reconnaissance uh, of, of the island. And they were, uh, you know, so they ended up using him that first day that he was there. They were saying, now we see these, uh, um, these concrete, uh, uh, pillboxes, machine guns, and we're going to have to take them out on the coast. And Takahiro looks looks at the photo and gets you know a magnifying glass. He said, "Sir, uh, those aren't machine guns; those are family tombs, and I don't think you should blow them up." Um, so he was was really telling them what it was like on the ground there. And then, of course, in the invasion, he he ended up uh, uh, yeah, uh, on the on on the beach and. Uh, uh, in standing in front of the the caves, one cave after another, with a bullhorn, trying to convince, uh, trying to convince the civilians who had been really indoctrinated by the Japanese army that if you're captured by the Americans, you're going to be tortured to death, and it's horrible, and it's better you take your own life with your family. And a lot of them did. There were horrible scenes of of, of young mothers uh, jumping off cliffs, holding onto their babies, and. So these intelligence, these uh, language guys uh, were just going from one cave to another to another to um, try to talk these folks out. And sometimes there'd be 100 or 200 of them in the cave. And if I can get to the end of the story, I love Takahiro's 50 years later as a man in his 70s returns to Okinawa. And the local newspaper does a story on him and his pictures in the paper and the reporter Calls uh, calls him up and says, "There's somebody that'd like to meet you." They arrange a meeting at a restaurant, and uh, he's sitting there when this older lady walks in, and she recognizes him from the newspaper, and she comes over and introduces herself and says, um, "You know, M uh, Mr. Higa, I just want to thank you. I was a girl in the cave, and I remember what you said. You said I am an Okinawan boy. I am in the American Army. We will feed you. We will take care of you." come out to us. I am an Okinawan boy. And she remembered that and that had been in the newspaper. So she was thanking him for her life. And she brought with her a younger adult woman who said, and Mr. Higa, I need to thank you as well, because you saved my mother. You also gave me my life. And, and so what Tagohiro realized, and it was a beautiful coming full circle for him, 
you know, he went to Okinawa. He didn't fire his gun once. He didn't he didn't take a life, but he saved a lot of lives. And he really felt that that had been his his mission in the war. Was that the general experience of most of the MIS in uh, the Pacific fighting their um, the fighting the enemy from their ancestral homeland? Well, uh, it, uh, any not, I mean, there are several of the characters in the book that we follow. I mean, take Roy Matsumoto. I mean, he he was in Japan for about four or five years going to school, and then his parents moved from California to Japan. And so they resettled there with his younger brothers. And then when Roy came back to the United States before the war broke out, and but his family stayed there. And so when Roy went in, and he ended up with Merle's Marauders as well, when he went in, uh, you know, he had this fear. He's got three brothers who are military age. And in fact, he wouldn't know this until the end of the war, but all three of them were in the Japanese army. And of course, that was his fear that he would, in Burma, on a mountaintop, uh, you know, have to, you know, be have to look across the lines and see his brother. So, you know, he took he took heart though in 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 knowing that his family, at least, he thought were safe because they weren't living in Tokyo or, you know, uh, in a place that would likely be bombed. They were in a small town called Hiroshima. Yeah. Um, what about? Them being mistaken for the enemy, did the American army uh, make any provisions for that? That was a huge uh, concern and a very real problem. Uh, un, you know, certainly the 442nd in Europe did not have that problem, right? Um, but in the Pacific, uh, the Japanese Americans couldn't help it. You know, they had the face of the enemy. There was nothing they could do about it. And so... Um, you know, the idea of being, you know, they could mistakenly be shot by friendly fire uh, was very real. In fact, that did happen. And um, um, I talk about one incident in particular in the book. Uh, but in a lot of these invasion uh, invasions, they would um, assaults, they would assign uh, a security guard to each uh, Nisei. Uh, you know, and and just to make sure that he's not. I mean, can you imagine war is dangerous enough being shot by, you know, the enemy, but to potentially be shot uh, by your own troops accidentally uh, at the same time on on um, Iwo Jima. One of my characters was, uh, you know, he was with the Marines, landed with the Marines and uh, about the same here he is on on the sands there doing his job, trying to trying to uh, interpret some uh, battle plans that have been captured from the enemy. And this, this, this alert goes out to the Marines that the Japanese are uh, stripping the uniforms off the dead Marines, putting them on and infiltrating our lines. So if you see, if you see a Japanese dressed like a Marine, shoot them. Well, <laughs> you know, there's our guy, you know, on the beach doing his thing. So, I mean, it was, just a terribly dangerous time and how they must have felt. Um, yeah, I mean, it just, you know, there there was really no safety anywhere. Well, you know, your book has tremendous amount of um, information, but what I took away was your great gift for storytelling. Um, you get into the portrayal, not only of the events and the training and the danger and the uh, heroism, let's say, uh, and the strategic importance of the roles of the men in the MIS, but you create a portrayal of their inner lives 
which I've never really read in these kinds of books in the genre, let's say, of war histories. Um, you know, you 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 go about capturing so much of the emotional tenor of their lives. You you both of the MIS uh, soldiers and their parents too in the internments camp in the internment camps, but you don't gild the lily, as it were. You don't um, philosophize. You don't add. You do it through pure storytelling. How did you accomplish all that? Well, I guess I should first talk about what I look for in a story, and it's um, I. When it comes to writing history, you know, I, I strive to to tell a a big story. Um, and certainly this book is a big story. It's about World War II in the Pacific. And in fact, it even starts before the war in the 30s. But I, I tell it through the lives of a few who lived it. And that's what attracts me really to, that's what attracted me to this story. Uh, I want to, I want to find out uh, how they felt and how they lived and what their lives were like and what their concerns were about their families. And I don't want to just do, you know, as I say, I'm not just looking for a military resume about where guys were. I want, I, you know, I want so much more. I, I should say that, you know, my, the first work of military history I ever read and I was in my teens was a, a book by Cornelius Ryan, The Longest Day. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but you know, he had virtually a cast of hundreds <laughs> and um, and he, he would, you know, maybe just have a paragraph about this corporal who jumped with 101st on D-Day. And then that's it. We don't, you know, hear from him again. Now, there's some value there for as a historian. And that was certainly remarkable work. And it probably kind of helped me figure out that, yeah, this is so, uh, so interesting to me. But that is the antithesis of the kinds of books the kind of book that I want to write and what interests me the most. And it's, it's very much the characters and who's in it. Now you, you might wonder, how did I pick this, these six guys um, uh, to have in my book? And um, it, it, it was a process that, first of all, I wanted, I wanted coverage. In other words, I didn't want all of them in one place at the same time. And so I wanted somebody in ADAC, and I wanted somebody in the Philippines, New Guinea, Burma, Okinawa, Iwo Jima. I wanted it spread out because I knew I was going to be taking on this Pacific theater. But also, uh, I, I should say that only one of the six uh, in the book was alive at the time I took it on. And I was able to have one interview with Kazu Komodo shortly before he died. And uh, not an, it would not have been enough for me to have included him in, in the story because by then he was 100 years old and, you know, kind of losing his memory and stuff. But for him and for the others who were already gone, I had to find a body of material. And, and, and that was that's that also is a is part of the, the 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 choice that I make and also part of the elimination process. If I don't have that material uh, to get what and into the interiority of the character what they were thinking and feeling because even though it reads like an i hope it reads like a, a novel uh it's it's nonfiction and it's all true and nothing gets made up dialogue doesn't get made up uh it's narrative nonfiction, and but it's nonfiction, 
first and foremost, true. So I, the oral histories uh, and the interviews that they had done pre in, earlier in their lives, uh, one organization, for example, Go For Broke, uh, the Nisei uh, Vets organization, I've been great, were great and have been great for a number of years, uh, bringing these vets in and sitting them down and doing two, three, four-hour oral histories. Uh, and uh, there are other groups, too, that as well that have done that. Well, getting a hold of those, and then, of course, not every oral history is equal because it depends on what they were asked. And, uh, you know, uh, if somebody doesn't say, how did you feel, but just, you know, says, well, where did you go? That's not, you know, as interesting to me as the how did you feel question. So, and then it's part of like, what were the guys like? How did they answer the question? Were they willing to delve into their feelings? And not everybody is. Um, and so it, it, that that is the process the, of selecting, uh, the, the, as I call them, the cast uh, for my book, for my books. Well, you know, it's a great, great read and very moving in the way you you tell the stories. Um, and, you know, as the author of this very, very finely done book, did you have any takeaways from having covered this history and these individuals? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I have to tell you, I mean, uh, uh, my, the, the, I, I was moved myself by, by the stories that I was uh, constantly writing and, and, and delving into. I mean, it's true that even nonfiction writers cry sometimes when they're writing, not just poets. Um, and, um, but partly I, I feel my takeaway is, uh, is that there's honestly never been a better time uh, I think for uh, this this book and this this type of book, telling these stories to be published in this country than right now. And granted, I, I came upon it through you know kind of accidentally. Again, I didn't wasn't looking for it, didn't even know it existed. But you know, here we are today. Sadly, I mean, this anti-immigrant these anti-immigrant sentiments that that are still just too prevalent in this country and we're in an america today that that too often prejudges people based on race ethnicity countries of origin and you know it's like enough i mean this timeless message of 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 courage yes but also what true patriotism is you know really shouldn't be forgotten and i'm just i'm really honored to have told these stories and to have these guys came to life for me in 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 in, in doing the book, and uh, well, they do reading reading the book as well. You know, I have to tell you, uh, it was one of the most compelling readings I've ever had out of any book. Well, thank you, Garrett. I, I and it was hard to let go, and I have to tell you, it still is uh, a bit. And I stopped. You know, it's been a long time since I've, I've turned in the manuscript, but you know, they're still they're still with me, and. Um, I, I hear from the families, by the way. ...of questions that I want to put to you, but I think we've reached the point where we have time for um, questions from our audience. I wonder if you've been fielding through those. Great. First question is, um, while you were researching your book, was there anything that you discovered that surprised you? Well... I, I was I was surprised uh, at any turn, any number of times. I mean, 
first of all, I was surprised at how many of these young men did step forward from behind barbed wire fences, you know, and, and, you know, they were in camps where there were gun towers and the machine guns weren't pointed outward. They were pointed inward. And these young men who were Americans, um, when they were asked and to volunteer, they did so in these huge numbers. And I, I, I was, that surprised me and kind of amazed me. I mean, I knew, obviously, that, that the Nisei fought, uh, you know, in, in the war, but uh, it, it amazed me to the extent that they, that they did. And also their families. Uh, again, their parents were Japanese. Uh, Japan was their country. Uh, and yet they were sending their sons off to fight against Japan. But they would send them off with this kind of message. Japan is our country. And by the way, the parents tended to be ashamed for, you know, feel ashamed for what their country had done to this country. Uh, but they sent, they told their sons and the message repeatedly over and over and over was, this is your country. America is your country. And go, go defend her and make us proud. And so many of these young men got sick sent off with that kind of message that surprised me that the families were so willing to um to give up their sons in that in that fight you know do you know how many uh, soldiers died while serving nisei soldiers died while di serving in world war ii well i know how many in the in the pacific did and i have actually a name we have in the back of the book um and the java organization the japanese american veterans association uh, helped me. <laughs> I couldn't have done it on my own. Uh, two researchers spent over a year uh, going through all of the records of the graduates of the language school and then uh, looked at how many of them went to the Pacific. And so we have a list and it's and the Army had no no roster. There was never a, a list, um, you know, that the Army developed. And we have in the back of the book, 33 pages of over 3,000 names of Japanese-American soldiers who fought in the Pacific. And we also were able to find uh, close to 60 of them who were uh, killed in action. Uh, these, again, these, these uh, in language, uh, from these language teams and military intelligence teams. We have another question here. How long did it take you to complete the research for this book? Well, the journey I started on, it took me four years. Um, and I would say about half of that was research. And the other half was writing. And uh, um, so, yeah, I mean, for me, actually, the writing is the hard part. <laughs> I, I really love the research and finding out uh, the information and, and uh, calling and the families and uh, trying to get what, you know, what I could get in terms of uh, any kind of uh, records that they had left behind, correspondence. Uh, uh, again, most of them were deceased, but the families had retained, uh, in some cases, some pretty extensive files and materials. And uh, so they were, you know, giving them to me and turning them over to me. And I mean, there, I just got so much cooperation from the families. They again are, are were proud of 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 what they of what these guys did. Are there any um? TV shows or films that you feel are accurate uh, or accurately portray the Japanese-American soldiers' experience during World War II? Well, 
um, there's none that <laughs> there's none that have been done about the military intelligence service, the uh, the Nisei who fought in the Pacific. I hope this book will change that. And there is some talk in Hollywood right now, but you know, talk in Hollywood is cheap. Uh, there have certainly been uh, books and films done on the Nisei in in Europe, uh, and I remember there it's an old one with Van Johnson was the was the that that was it go for broke now i don't know how realistic that is because you know i didn't study that at all but uh there have been um a number of those so you know i yeah I, and there's a new book out uh, a year ago uh on the uh, 442nd uh in europe by a guy named daniel brown which um is excellent he's a good writer so if you're interested in the europe uh part of the story um you know that would that would be a book these um, soldiers you covered, um, you weren't able to interview any of them except one personally. Uh, would you, what would you like have liked to ask them had you been able to do that? Well, honestly, thankfully, uh, due to the tremendous amount of great material that I had on all of them, almost, almost universally for each each of them i felt like i got the answers and i got i got the um uh the pieces of of them that i that i needed uh for the book and uh again i you know thank thank other other people and other groups for that who've who were able to uh talk to them and sit them down and and uh um Oh, sure. I mean, would there have been a question or two? Obviously, I'm a former newspaper reporter. I would have had no problem asking them more questions. But I felt I got to the heart of the matter through the material that I accumulated. No, I think so, anyway. Um, But now that your book is published and out there um, to be purchased, um, is there a story or a person you wish you could have included more about? Well, I wish I could have had twice as many in, <laughs> in the cast. And I I actually, at one point, my final cut was nine. And then I looked at it and figured out how many pages that was going to be. And you know how publishers feel about pages. I was fighting the battles it was to get 33 pages with the names in the back of the book. Uh, nine probably would have been too many. And um, so I realized I had to, I, I had the last couple of people that I, I had really great material on and I I had to pull pull out and pull aside and maybe I'll do another book. I don't know, but there's certainly more stories there and certainly more. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's there. Well, we have a last question. Uh, is it right to assume that the Japanese-American soldier experience was not covered widely by the United States press outlets? Uh, that in terms of the Pacific, was that the question? Well, I, it doesn't say Pacific or Europe. It just says Japanese American soldiers. Okay, that's a good question, though. But let me break it up. First of all, the the four hundred forty second that fought in Europe got a lot of publicity even during the war, as well they should have. And the you know they were a great example. They were to help with rec- that helped with recruiting you know other Japanese Americans and whatnot. And it was it was a you know, they were looking for great, good stories, you know, obviously during the war for the for the American public. The guys that went in the Pacific, nothing, virtually nothing was done. And there was a reason nothing was done. 
the war planners in Japan were pretty confident that their language was so difficult that the Westerners were just not going to be able to understand it and at the battlefield level or anywhere near there. And that a lot of the Japanese communications in the Pacific then was uncoded. And they just, you know, they were they were honestly sloppy and lazy about it and a little arrogant about it. Um, we did not want them to know that we had these these teams of Japanese language guys who were there. Uh, I mean, one of the characters taps into a enemy telephone line and sits there and gets the information and the coordinates on a on a big ammunition dump and and calls it in. And the next morning, one plane circles over, drops one bomb, and blows this whole ammunition uh, dump up. So that's the kind of valuable stuff that they were getting in in the field that we couldn't have gotten if they were doing newspaper stories and magazine articles about these language teams during the war. So that was a really good reason why it wasn't done. Uh, after, when they were discharged, they were told, by the way, you were military intelligence, you're still covered under the Secrets Act, and you're not to go around and talk about what you did. At that time, we were doing the occupation of Japan, and we were trying to you know, build that democracy and ally, and we didn't really want a lot of information about out there about you know what we were doing. A lot of these guys, uh, the language guys who fought in the Pacific, were did go to Japan and 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 not only take part in the war crimes trials initially, but also in the occupation uh, occupational government there. And so uh, they didn't they didn't even get the press after the war. And you know, and then the other thing is these guys they're not the type that are going to go down to the to the veterans hall on Thursday, you know, for a beer. They're because there's still prejudice. I mean, they walk in. Yeah, they're vets. But, you know, we just fought Japan and that wouldn't have felt really comfortable, probably. So they tended not to join the typical veterans groups and they didn't have big reunions because they, they had these small teams. So they didn't, you know. So anyway, yeah, and the, the long and short of it is is that the Nisei story in, in the Pacific did not get told and has not really been told uh, up to now. <laughs> so, and many of us are very grateful that you tell tell the story. I know my friends Frank Abe and David Mura are very appreciative of the book, as am I. Um, well, um, we've come near to our closing moments. Um, my thanks and all of our thanks to you, Bruce Henderson, author of Bridge to the Sun, for joining us today. We encourage everyone to pick up a copy of Bruce's new book at your local bookstore. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit commonwealthclub.org online. I'm Garrett Hongo. Well, thank you and take care. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.